Well, I am not going to talk about this thing because I can't find the on and off switch. Uh, so I'm not a computer expert. I am uh, not going to give you a scholarly presentation. This is supposed to be pretty much practical approach to something that is a very, very, very common and popular question. And that is, how do I know I am choosing the right spouse? How do I know I'm dating the right person? How do I know I'm in the right dating relationship? A lot of you are pretty much aware of the statistics about marriage. There's all kinds of, uh, of ideas that spread about marriage, basically that the divorce rate is like 50 or more percent, 55 percent. And you will hear people say, it doesn't make any difference whether you're Catholic, Christian, or anything else. And if it really doesn't make any difference, what are you doing here? And if it doesn't really make any difference, why would anybody get married in the Roman Catholic Church? I was in Peoria for five years before I came here. That's why I was late. <laughs> um, and what I did there is I prepared about 10,000 people for marriage. Oh, not on one day, but over the course of time. So you're going to have to sit and listen to me as long as you want. You know, only about 45 minutes or how long is this? 45 minutes or something, whatever this time is. Well, they'd have to sit all day long. They'd have these long pre-cana programs. Why would they come there? If it didn't make any difference, what are we doing? There's something wrong with the Roman Catholic Church. There's something wrong with our faith. If it doesn't make any difference whether you're Catholic or not. But that concept, one of the problems with it, it is nothing to do with reality. It has nothing to do with the true demographics. That 50% divorce rate is including all marriages. They've got Elizabeth Taylor and me. Now, Elizabeth Taylor has been married, what, seven times and divorced seven times or more. I don't know, last time I heard. Now, she's going to throw the whole system off. <laughs> and there's a lot of people who get divorced a bunch of times, and they're all part of this. So if you start to look a little bit more carefully at the statistics, you'll see something very interesting. How many first-time marriages divorce? That's a more important question. Because people who make a mistake one time in marriage are often likely to make the mistake again. I see it in my practice. They'll make a bad choice and then go out and choose the same guy with a different name. The divorce rate for first-time marriages is just over 30%. So that means the success ratio is not 50%, but it's closer to 70 Now, there's some other things that we can see that are very telling. There are approximately 82 studies done on religious practice in the United States. And the question would be, what difference does it make? The very question I'm posing here. 
And they find that the more frequently someone goes to church, the more likely they are to be married, the more likely they are to have children, the more likely they are to enjoy their marital union in the conjugal embrace. I told my brother Rocky that, and he's been trying to get his wife to go to Mass every day ever since. <laughs> but that's a statistic. Why? That they're more likely to be healthy, they're, more, they're less likely to have the mental illness, they're less likely to have drug addiction. The more they go to church, the more that they pay, play, pray. That's the, that's the Welsh thing. You know, you say something three times. So I'm saying pay, play, and I don't know what the word was, pray. That's what I was really looking for. All of those things. And so the more people do this, we see this. There's 82 studies. It's very interesting because all 82 studies concluded that there was a positive effect of religion. Only 15 showed neutral, and there was only 4% that religious had a negative impact, and those people were not following their religion. They were going against something the religion told them. So the relationship of religion and religious practice is fairly clear. Now, it was very easy for me to do research when I was in Peoria. People don't realize what a gold mine there is. I mean, not that you really care, but it's actually going to benefit you. That's why we study these things, to know how we can change something, to improve something. All the research and all the ideas that you see written about when they speak about marriage and marital relationships and counseling, all those articles are based on five studies. Five different studies that have been done and everybody goes to that research to base the data for their article, for their paper. The total population is 350 people. 350 people. The University of Illinois came to me when I was in pre-K and I said, we want to do research using your sampling pool because we want to know about engaged couples. In just six weeks, they had 352 people that they could survey. So for me, I did the research for myself. It's called the Peoria study. And in that study, I was able to ask them various questions. It's very easy to ask Catholics questions to know whether or not they are practicing their faith. Because basically, how often do you go to church? If a Catholic says three or four times, that's good for a Protestant. That's very good for a Protestant, right? Because they don't have to go. But if a Catholic says three or four, what are they telling you about the practice of their faith? We don't have free dips on a weekend off. The frequency of confession tells us a good deal. So in that, when you start to look at the research, for those who actually practice their faith, we see a radical change. We see a higher even intensity of health in the family. Now another, the major indicator, also a positive 
experiences of marriage happen to be the family meal. How frequently you eat together. Now this proves emphatically that God is truly an Italian. <laughs> That's reality. So you people don't understand. A lot of you Irish people, they don't understand this. <laughs> my, my Irish wife doesn't understand this, so she's learning, though. She can make good sauce now. She makes the best lasagna. See, that, it's a miracle. That's what the grace of the sacrament can do. <laughs> you remember that, gentlemen. Pray for her, and she will become an excellent cook. It doesn't matter. It's a special grace. St. Thomas Aquinas says it's impossible for a man and woman to live together as a church calls you to, except for a special grace from God. And this is the first place it gets manifest. The woman learns how to cook sauce. It's true. Now, the bottom line of it is that these things... That this practice of the faith, the family meal, is so very, very important. There's all kinds of research that shows it. Shows the great point average. We saw virginity is higher. Chastity is higher. The presence of the Father there is critically important. So you see those kinds of things. They're all very, very important. On the negative side, we can. I forgot my. I have a talk. I actually have this stuff on paper. I think I'm supposed to read something. However, it's out in the car, so we'll forget about that. The bottom line of it is, on the negative side, it's very interesting. The major indicator of divorce happens to be the use of contraception. I imagine most of you are familiar with the study that was done by Robert T. Michaels, uh, what's her face? I know her well. Janet Smith did uh, a whole routine on it. But there was a, a jump in the divorce rate where it jumped 50% from 65 to 75. And he measured all the different variables. Women going to work, uh, military, the economy, the guys losing a job, all these different things. And they found that 50%, the major cause of divorce was not women going to work, it was the use of artificial contraception using some contraceptive device. And that research was borne out in a study done later in Japan because they didn't go to the technology until a few years later. So off the top, we can say the indicators of positive, healthy marriage are going to be frequency of church, and the avoidance of the using, using of contraception. And we start looking at Catholics who do those two things, the divorce rate is less than 10%, it's in the 5% area. It's very, very low. Very, very low, unrealistically low. However, that's what it is. However, we all know this in terms of Nobody here is sitting here thinking, well, I'm going to want to go out and do that. And still, couples here would have trouble getting married and living it out. What's the problem? If we ask the general population, everybody's going to tell us religious values are going to matter. 
They will be part of a healthy marriage. Virtues, good habits will be part of a, uh, of a healthy marriage. All of these things that we know are going to be hard, part of a healthy marriage. Everybody will tell me this. Because it's co-natural. However, if everybody knows this, why are they doing what they're doing? Why does my research show that only 63% of them are going to church three or four times a month? Only 42% of them are going to church every single Sunday. Why is it that so many of them are having premarital relations if they know this? Why is there such an inconsistency with the action and the value? Why? And that's the point of this talk. That's what all conflict in marriage is. All conflict that you will ever endure, ever encounter in marriage, will be, there is this action. What is that? Is that something functioning? Am I being recorded? This is for that? Oh. Okay. Well, I'll use this instead. Of course, I have no idea what this is all about. Why was I lifting this up? I have no idea what I'm talking about. What was I talking about? Is anybody paying attention? Oh, good. This is a test, actually. I just want to make sure you're paying attention. All conflict in marriage starts in... All what? All conflict in marriage. Oh, right. Very good. No, no, no. Oh, that's a brilliant idea. I'm right with you. I can, I can take it from here. All conflict in marriage is going to be over an act... That's what I was doing this for. This action, this stupid thing here, doesn't have a turn on and off switch. I don't know how you turn it on. Anyways, it is inconsistent with the value we hold. So, you will say to your darling husband, we value respect, but this thing you're doing isn't respectful. You say that you love me, but you're spending all your time with your friends. You spend more time at work than you spend time with me. Your actions don't say I'm number one. All of you here, if you were to make a list of priorities in your life, and imagine yourself to be a married man, a married woman, what would the number one be? What would be the number one priority, number one value you hold? What? Oh, this one wasn't on. Oh, oh, I'm only half with it. Now what? Good. You see? Yeah. Actually, he was watching. He was ready to take down anybody's name who didn't get that one right. God is number one. Now who? Gentlemen. Only the men. Ladies, listen carefully. This is the time. <laughs> What's number two, gentlemen? Your wife. 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 I didn't hear anybody say wife and children. No one said that. Everyone is very, very smart. Wife. Ladies. What's number two for you? How come, what, did you hear what I heard? What did you hear? Did you hear something confusing? How come, how come with men it comes out white? With, uh, with women it comes out husband, children? 
point them out, but did, <laughs> gentlemen, did some lady around you say child or children? <laughs> now, you see how smart these guys are? <laughs> these are smart guys. He knows nobody raised their hand. He's kind of trying to signal to me with nobody because he knows <laughs> You're all right. Don't succeed. You will survive in marriage. That's a sign. That's a cue. Marriage is all about survival. So, now, number three would be children. Now, what we would have here, we have some people who might say children at number two. They put it up with a spouse. But in fact, that would be wrong. That would be not correct. Because the union between man and wife is bound in God by vow. I sound like one of those Baptist people. By God. Um, I'm sorry about that. Um, have you noticed how they do that? They are not saying really. Anyways. The relationship with the child is a magnificence. The glory of God is the greatest value that the couple shares, without a doubt. It is the love between a man and a woman manifest in reality. Last week at my class, I had my bambino, primo, the first one, came to do the recording of the lecture. Now, he's 26 years old, and he's 185 pounds of my love for my wife. That's what he is. He's our love together. They're precious. That's what a child is. So there's nothing that a man and woman together would value more, per se, in terms of their love, because it's the embodiment of their love. The permanence of their marriage is based for the good of that child, as well as the good of their union. Because it takes 25, 30 years to get them out of the house. <laughs> Have you noticed that? <laughs> but they, we don't want you leaving. You're very welcome. You can come and stay as long as you want. However, it takes a long time. But there is a bond, a vow that is made. A union between the husband, the wife, and God. And that marital union must always take precedence. Now, in practical reality, the caring of the children is part of that partnership. And quite honestly, the man is going to be spending, oftentimes working out of the home, to have a single income. He's going to be spending 40 hours at least or so out in the world working. And the mother is going to be tending to be providing more for the children in the home. However, the prioritization, the necessity of cultivating and maintaining that marital relationship. Is that me? <laughs> oh, good. I, I say I got this thing, this new thing, and I have no idea how to control it at all. I finally bought something that is just too, I can't control this electronic thing, and I can't control that. So, but it was, what was that? What did I hear? You all heard it, though. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's very important, especially if there's voices, if you hear the voices, too. <laughs> so where was I? 
What's that talking about? See, that actually proves something. St. Thomas says the speech is controlled by the imagination. See, we talk on what's in our imagination. You can see how quickly anything goes out of my mind and I forget everything I'm talking about. However, the relationship to be cultivated. Because I work in a, a very unique kind of situation. I counsel only Catholics. Catholics come to me. I don't advertise, but they come to me because of the Catholic faith. They, want, they need some guidance. They need some counsel, but they don't want their faith messed with. They don't want somebody to sit there and say, it's okay for your son to do this immoral thing. It's okay for your daughter to do this immoral thing. They want to know that the values are upheld. And that's where that conflict idea comes in. The consistency. This is how you can actually measure someone's character. It's not only what they say, but what do they put into action. And I listed those priorities. Because after the child comes family, and after the family comes friends. So do the actions show that? Does a husband show his wife by his actions that God is first and she is second? But in God. Because no man can go to God and say, well, I got you covered. He said, where's your wife? Well, I don't, uh, wife, I don't know. She's Irish. She, I don't know. She's out there somewhere. <laughs> that doesn't work. There is that prioritization that comes into action. You see, think about conflict. Think when you're upset with somebody. What are you upset about? Your friends. And the way they acted was inconsistent with this value. It was not virtuous. It was not kind. It was not trustworthy. It did not show me that you value me. When people interrupt you when you're talking, they won't let you speak. They don't recognize the validity of what you're saying. They don't give you understanding. They just simply correct you. They contradict you. And it makes you feel insulted because it's like your opinion doesn't matter. That would be a conflict. This action is inconsistent with due respect. So it's looking at the actions. So if you want to know you're in a good relationship, you would look at someone's life. Look at what their values are, what they hold. Do they hold the same religious values you do? These religious values that do make a difference. They must make a difference. But do they live them? That is the difference. Whether someone lives it, whether their actions are consistent with these things, and there's always a struggle, there's always a battle, there's always a compliment. Men and women are a bowl of tension. Tension. God did not come to bring peace to the world. He came to give pizza, women, and tension. <laughs> So 
good. I did such a nice job. Everything's so good. Remember, everything's so good. Then he looks at this poor guy sitting there, gave him at his own navel under the tree, and says, oh, it's not good for him to be alone. He's real cute, but we can't leave him alone. <laughs> he did a real nice job, but boy, this guy, he needs a little bit of help here. So what's he do? Puts him to sleep, takes his rib out, and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now I see myself. That's the first thing a man does. Ah, I see myself as a mirror. <laughs> because he has to have someone of equal dignity that he could give himself to. He had dominion over all these animals because he had their name. However, with this woman, he saw something magnificent. He saw in her his gift of self. He was able to love as God loves. However, she was made differently. She was made differently. There's a thing called constated power. It has three acts, gentlemen. The first act is association. Whatever I'm saying to you, your constated power is going, making associations with memory. That's how every single word is understood by what I say. Everything is fast. No computer can keep up with your little cogitative power. And it makes assessments. It's the same as it's not. Constantly. And it takes that and puts that back into the, into the image. And then it makes an assessment. Is this good, useful, or harmful? And that is added. And then the third thing it does is it prepares this whole thing for abstraction. Now what happens, actually, is the constitutive power of the man and woman is a little bit different. Not in its nature, but in its application. It so happens, we find that men tend towards the third act. Women tend in their perfections. I don't know why you guys get perfections and we just get the third act. But you get perfections are in the second act. That assessment of good use and harm. So that there's this notion of temperance, there's this notion of compassion. There's something added to this. So what does it happen? How do we see this cogitative power? All right? You have a three-year-old brother. Three-year-old brother falls, hurts his knee, starts crying. What does your mother do? Yeah, what does she say to him? Poor, what? <laughs> I heard male voices. Were those male voices saying, all right? Are you all right? Were those men? Yeah, those are men. That's, right. That's the third act, ladies. That is the third act. That's what the men are going to do. Dad's going to say, are you all right? <laughs> That's it. That's men. Now, this gentleman, wait for a moment. Let the women answer. What is your mother going to do? What does she do? Poor baby! <laughs> she picks this kid up and says, It's okay to cry, you poor little baby. <laughs> poor thing. Huh? That's what they do. Come on, you know they do that. Every one of them, you, you do that, they do that. <laughs> so there's natural tension. All virtue is going to be in excess or deficiency. I could be a liar instead of being honest, or I could be devious. And I can say the truth when I should not say it, it's insincere. 
my wife comes home and my, my brother had given her a, a permanent. And I, you know, evidently there's, ladies know all about this, there's like 15, 20 minute permanents and five minute permanents. Like the hair, the hair. <laughs> evidently my wife has five minute hair. And my brother gave her 20 minutes. So, on the Monday morning at 6 o'clock, she's in the basement where the family room was, and the lights were out, and she's got a mirror. I thought that was strange. However, <laughs> and a brush, and she's crying. She's saying, six months. It'll take six months for it to grow up. So, I turned on the light, and I looked at it. Now, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> Are you all right? You want me to get back? six months, I did nothing but look at the eyes. <laughs> Survival. <laughs> but in that, in that moment, you literally have the genius of God applied to man and woman because there's a tension. Without the man saying, shake it off, you have a woman coddling a little boy and making him a wimp to pain. <laughs> However, if you don't have the woman to soften this drill sergeant up, you got a bunch of little hard-hearted, non-compassionate Pharisees running around. <laughs> so there's always a tension. So what is the point here? The point is, you're not going to bear someone who's the same as you. You're going to be marrying someone who will compliment you. The woman is not going to be the same. And I think you notice that. But it's this natural compliment that takes place between men and women that enable them to nurture the children. It's interesting because it's that very same act of the cogitative power and a woman's emotion that is natural and part of a perfection is for the nurturing of the children. Just like women are more verbal, they can talk. You, 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 they talk to babies. <laughs> they have conversations with babies, gentlemen. <laughs> now, has any man here ever had a conversation with a baby? <laughs> no! No man Perfections, but it was this perfection that the devil used against Eve. Because he appealed, he said, Did God really say you couldn't eat anything? He made it sound oppressive. And then he proposed to her that God was a liar, 
that they wouldn't die. And he presented to her three goods, beauty, delight, wisdom. Are those evil? Those are all goods. She chose three goods, but over here, it was a trick. It was a sleight of hand trick. He made her believe that he existed outside of God's order. And they didn't. Now, we look harshly on her. St. Thomas looks much more harshly on Adam. Because Adam wasn't deceived. He knew God wasn't a liar. So where was he? Why was he silent? Why didn't he speak up? Why didn't he? Why did he take it? At any time he could say, get away from my wife, you snake. Or when she came to him, she, he could have said to her, look, it was my fault. I should have said something. I knew. I knew what was going on. And I didn't say, just wait. I don't know how we're going to get out of this, but I'll talk to God about it. Let me do all the talking. He could have done that, but he didn't do it. Even when... God shows up. What's the first thing he does when he eats it? He no longer looks at himself through the eyes of someone who loves him. He looks at himself and sees his nakedness. Her love didn't reveal that to him. She loved him anyways. Her love didn't see his imperfections. She loved him anyways. So what does he do? He rejects her. And when God comes, what does he do? Does he stand there and say, look, it was my fault? Is Adam responsible? No, he doesn't. He says, the woman you gave me. So not only did this woman goof everything up, God is the one who is responsible because he gave her this woman. That very noble moment for mankind. <laughs> and this whole concept of stand that Adam refused to take is what Balthazar talks about in Christian states that Jesus Christ was all about. He came and he took the stand. There's a German word for it, which I wouldn't remember if I would have learned it. However, it sounds German. Imagine something sounds German, and that's what the word is. <laughs> but standing, and even the standing of the Blessed Virgin Mary at the foot of the cross. Gentlemen, You must be willing to take a stand, to go forth. And that's an important thing for a man to stand for his wife, to be able to pull the trigger, to do things. So you look at the person's actions. You look at how they do, what they hold, what they value. Look at their families. How do they treat their mother? I tell my sons... <laughs> little darlings. <laughs> Whenever they would be acting with great benevolence and opportunities for grace for everyone else in the house, I would say, <clears throat> any woman worth her salt is going to watch how you're treating your mother. Because she'll know that's how you're going to treat her. Ladies, you can take it to the bank. You watch how a young man treats his mother. Because that's where they learn it. If a man doesn't treat his mother with due respect, why would he treat you that way? If his father does not treat his mother with due respect, what has he learned? How is he different? 
you watch the marital relationship, both of you, that they're coming from, because that's their school. That's their education. It doesn't mean they'll all repeat it. I deal with a lot of couples who did not receive what they needed from their parents. Yet, by the grace of God, they turned around and gave those things that they didn't know to their very children. However, how do you do it? How do you place the good that you've never known in your life and someone else's life? It's one thing to say, well, I won't do this. I won't lose my temper. I won't cheat on my wife. I won't do these bad things. Because you saw the bad things, but how do you duplicate the good you've not seen? So looking there, looking at the family, how does the family deal with pain? How does it deal with crisis? How does it deal with pasta? I mean, this is really important. Does this woman like pizza, for God's sake? <laughs> what did our Lord do every time it's something important he ate? Well, he raises a woman, little girl from dead. Hey, have something to eat. I'm not a child. He's, what happens when he rose, rises from the dead? He's having a barbecue on the beach. <laughs> now, I'm going to be real careful here and try to be a little bit more reverent because I don't want to, really don't want to go to hell. However, the Eucharist is himself. He took this tradition of the meal, the Passover, and he made it the embodiment of himself. Looking at how you act together. So it is not a crapshoot. Oh, excuse me. It was not a, oh, what did he say? What was the word you had? A rolling of the dice. It's not a rolling of the dice. Because the person that it takes to fulfill the role of a husband or a wife has to have the character to do so. And it can be seen. Everyone here could go this evening, sit down at your computer, and make a list of the qualities you want to see in your ideal spouse. Ideal husband, ideal wife. I recommend that you do that. And you will have a litany of virtue. Then stop and think, well, how will I see that? How will I know that she has that? My wife told me something that surprised me. It's, my father was the kindest man I've ever known. He was the most virtuous man I've ever known. He was truly, truly a fine man. But his kindness, what was so overpowering. Well, I remember my wife said to me a number of years after we were married that the first thing she noticed was how I was kind to someone. We met in a study group. You know, because how do you meet someone? I mean, your folks send you here. <laughs> and anybody who's got a brain will send you here. And that is really 
where are you going to find common policy? You can go, go to a bar, or you can come here. Now, obviously, the more prudent thing to meet someone of like value would be here and not in the bar. And evidently, there's an Italian priest who got everybody together to study the faith. And he asked me to help him. But evidently, there's a, a, somebody from the street had wandered into the library. And he was lost, and you know the kind of state he might be. I don't remember this incident, but my wife did. And it was how I dealt with that man. It was in watching that, which I don't even remember. I just simply responded the way my father would respond, anybody would respond, I thought. I had experience working with mentally ill people, but I didn't think much about it, but my wife did. To see those things, to see how is it manifest. But you have that list. And how will you know it? And it's not that the person you marry is going to be full of that, because women are supposed to make men better. However, you want to make sure you're in the ballpark. So if this is so, if it is just a matter of faith, What's the problem? Because a lot of you, you know, you see pain in your own families, difficulties in families around you, people trying to live the faith. However, there's always still the moderation. People going too far this way, too far to the right, too far to the left. And then there are those personal interplays. The communication. And I'm going to give you one thing. I'm going to give you only one thing. I'm not going to give you a workshop. I wouldn't get any pizza if I gave you a workshop. And it's the same thing that I give everyone that I teach psychology to. It's the same thing I would give to the seminarians right before they're ordained. The basis of sound pastoral counseling. The foundation for all counsel. The foundation for all prudence. Understanding. Understanding is the quintessential virtue of marriage. In my opinion, it is the virtue that man and woman desire most. It is the most indicative of love. It's like St. Francis said, to know you, to know myself. A woman wants to be understood I can say this, and everyone here knows the word understanding, but I'm quite sure not one of you understand what I mean. I've dealt with this word for 35 years, and its profundity is still beyond me. How encompassing it is. But I'm going to give you a simple, practical aspect Gentlemen, that a woman wants to be understood. The entire relationship is based upon that. It's not that you agree, it's that you understand. And that you listen. Does the person you're speaking to listen to you? 
Do they understand you? What is it that tells you they understand? If you're coming with them and saying something to them, do they cut you off? I know on this campus there are some people who are very good listeners and people seek you out. But I know on this campus there are people who are good listeners who are sought out, but when they need to speak, the same people that have come to them are not there. They won't listen. They won't take the time to set themselves aside. That's what it takes to be understanding. To hear what this person means. To hear what this person is saying. Someone asked me today, so do, do you ever get bored doing what you do? You know, 20, I don't know, 27 years. Do you ever get bored? I never got bored. I don't get bored. Everything's so difficult to get bored. It doesn't make any difference. There's always seems to be more and more in St. Thomas, more and more in the church that I don't know, and more and more in this human being. I understand so much about human nature to know that I don't understand so much about human nature because I don't understand your nature. I don't know who you are and how you see what you see. It's understanding you that becomes important. How can I counsel if I do not understand what you're asking? If I don't understand what you're really even saying, what it means to you? How can I come in and say, well, you need this, you need this, you need that, when I don't understand it yet? If you understand, then you start to see it. And the very nature of the thing provides solutions. It's like people wanting to understand anger. How can you control anger? They have all these stupid ideas. Well, you can't control anger unless you understand what it is. Once you understand what it is, then you realize there's only one remedy, is to forgive. Why is it so hard to forgive? Then understand the nature of anger, then you see why it's so hard. But when someone's communicating to you, do you really listen to them? Do you truly listen? Or are you just waiting for them to pause so you can get it? Do you just cut them off? Do what? Two minutes. What's all this mean? Two minutes. It's a of saying yes. This is a code? <laughs> Why don't you just say two minutes? <laughs> now the key to a marital relationship, in all relationships, will be the values that you both hold, and then whether or not they are consistently expressed in the actions. And that's what you look for. And you see that. And then the understanding that must be there. And the last thing, gentlemen, pull the trigger. One of the major problems, this isn't going to be done in 60 seconds, but I'm going to say it. I see in Catholic gentlemen growing into their 30s, 35, 40, they meet wonderful young women, wonderful Catholic women who are definitely in the ballpark. And they're afraid to pull the trigger. There is a vice of indecisiveness that dominates. 
Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not criticize. Don't look for flaw in the woman. Don't point out flaw in a woman. Don't criticize her. But trust. If you are looking at someone who is sharing your faith, and you see the virtue in them, then you trust the marital union and your commitment to overcome that through mutual understanding, perseverance, and endeavor, and by this very special grace of God. So does Catholicism make a difference? Yes. I guarantee it. You live a Catholic marriage and work to strive to live virtue moderately with each other and to mutually understand things and work mutually together, you will overcome. It is your will. Your will that will matter. I have never seen anyone or anything in my office that could not be overcome except the human will to walk away. May God bless you and keep you and bring lots of more pizza.